Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez. I'm a commercial litigator with Womble Bond Dickinson. With me, as always, is my producer, Brian Ewing. Today, our guest is Adriana Dulick. Adriana is the Chief Compliance Officer for Epic Payment Solutions. They're a third-party payment processor facilitator. They service thousands of websites on behalf of e-commerce merchants. Amazingly, Adriana has been there 17 years um, doing uh, technology and financial uh, regulation stuff. That's a long time for an in-house position. Um, We're excited you could join us, Adriana. Uh, Thanks, Mark. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) Great. You know, uh, we're still recording in a time of the COVID-19 pandemic. It certainly seems to influence everything we're doing. And I think for many people, it's highlighted how important um, the financial technology or fintech industry is to our economic growth. People are, even before COVID, people were banking from home and doing mobile banking and buying online. But now that people are not only working from home, but playing from home and shopping from home and getting entertainment at home, I think the idea of remote payment and technology is really important. And so I appreciate you coming on to kind of talk to our listeners about what may be happening in the fintech industry and and around the whole payment processing. So, So I appreciate it. Let's start by just having you share with our audience a little bit about your own background and and some of the history at Epic. Sure. Um, so as you mentioned, I am Chief Compliance Officer at Epic Payment Solutions, um, and this is my 17th year, as you pointed out. <laughs> and I initially started out as a corporate counsel uh, responsible for contracts and contract negotiations uh, and everything that goes along with that, which would be amendments, assignments of those contracts, due diligence, and so on. Uh, and then my role uh, sort of expanded over the years to include a lot more. This <laughs> um, mm-hmm. is our entire infrastructure, our processes and procedures, and, and really our business in general uh, became a lot more regulated, complex, um, and structured. Um, so my company's been in business for over two decades, uh, and uh, we focus, as you said, on a card not present, meaning online transaction processing, so no brick-and-mortar processing at all which has been really fortunate for us, given current circumstances. Sure. Um, And we initially started out processing for U.S. merchants, and then we have over the years expanded to Europe as well. Um, And so as you can imagine, initially, and to some degree, that may still be true uh, in some parts of the world. Initially, we were not really directly regulated, uh, but were rather subject to payment network uh, scheme regulations, and contractual obligations that stem from our agreements that we enter into with our partnering banks and financial institutions. Um, And then over the years, that has by and large changed uh, so that we are now directly regulated in at least some parts of the world, uh, namely Europe. Uh, And I'm talking about sanctions compliance, privacy, uh, consumer protection, anti-money laundering, uh, and so on all of which uh, require uh, certain compliance programs to uh, be put in place. Uh, and I'm essentially in charge of those programs and uh, in running those programs. Great. Now, that's interesting. And it is it is 17 years is a long time for in-house, at least. We've talked to a lot of guests, you know, a few years here, a few years there. Where does compliance fit in your structure? Do you report to a general counsel or do you have a separate uh, line of reporting? I know that in talking to other in-house counsel, that's something that varies some company to company. So I'm curious how it's structured there at Epic. 
Yes. Um, no, I actually report directly to our uh, chief operating officer, a CEO. And I think for a lot of uh, highly and heavily regulated industries like financial services, um, CCOs tend to report directly to a COO and they tend to be separated from the um, legal, so to speak, um, or GC and, and CLO roles. Gotcha. And do you have a compliance team? In other words, do you have other people working with you or is this all on your shoulders? I do have some team members, but it's not a, you know, a big team like you would find in a bank. <laughs> gotcha. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about that regulatory structure because I think it kind of goes to the whole evolution. You know, it is interesting. Obviously, if you go back 30 years when I started practicing, you know, you had banks and a lot of regulatory structure around banks, mostly imposed by the Federal Reserve and that stuff. And then you, you know, you kind of obviously at that point, online payment really was not was not an existing thing. So it has been interesting to see kind of that regulatory evolution. And obviously you've kind of lived through it. Can you can you tell us a little more? And and I'm particularly you mentioned like some of the stuff which is happening in Europe. It might be helpful to our audience to kind of contrast the regulatory structure in the United States versus Europe and how that works for a company like you that has, you know, does business in both places. Yeah, um, so uh, Europe has really kind of taken the lead in this when it comes to fintech in that they have created uh, entire new categories, so to speak, of um, financial service providers, allowing fintechs to uh, sort of gain an equal footing with banks, so to speak, in that region. And so they have created um, categories like payments institutions, money institutions, and all of those can get registered directly with financial services regulators in those countries. And as I said, be on equal footing with banks. Um, on the other hand, in the U.S., it's um, totally different. <laughs> and it's a lot more fragmented um, in a sense that, um, you know, you're subject to federal regulation and at the same time state regulation, uh, which is making things very difficult, I think, for fintechs to get off the ground. And so um, the, the issue is that most of the time, if you are a fintech that, uh, you know, is uh, borderless in nature, meaning you operate online um, and you potentially have customers in all 50 states, um, then you essentially have to get registered and be subject to 50 different regulators and regulations, uh, which for, you know, it's a large investment to get up and going initially. And so I think OCC in the last few years has actually done a great job in trying to kind of uh, solve that issue in coming up with two um, special purpose bank uh, charters that are specifically designed for fintech and payments companies. Now, both are subject to challenge by the state regulators. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens to those. But uh, uh, OCC is definitely trying to do something about that issue uh, and kind of uh, make it a little easier for fintechs to get off the ground and operate on a national level. Gotcha. And for those that don't know, what is OCC? Office of the Currency Controller. <laughs> right. And has there been any litigation or regulatory challenges to some of those OCC guidance? And, and what, what's the current status of those fights? Yes. Um, so the FinTech Charter has been in existence for a little bit longer than the one specifically designed for payments companies. And that one has been challenged in court. Um, and uh, I believe it's still you know, ongoing, <laughs> hasn't really uh, gotten anywhere yet. Um, but in terms of the one for the payments companies, that one just came out this year. 
Um, and I think OCC is still kind of working on that idea. So I'm not entirely, I don't think it's actually yet available uh, if you wanted to apply for it. Uh, but uh, I know that state regulators have made the, basically the same comments they've been making for FinTech Charter uh, in that, you know, this is not something the OCC can do uh, and that it should be up, left up to states to do so. I suspect if and when it becomes available, they'll, they'll challenge it in court the same way they've done with the FinTech Charter. Um, but, you know, it should be noted that states are trying to uh, also work on the same issue uh, right. and that uh, they're actually now working together to sort of harmonize these state regulations uh, and potentially uh, come up with just one exam as opposed to having to uh, force the company to go through 50 different um, annual exams. Um, so they are working on certain things as well to sort of rectify the issue without the need for a fintech or a payment company's charter. So we'll see what happens with that. <laughs> gotcha. Well, tell us, I mean, it sounds like it's got to be a challenging environment for you guys. Obviously, you guys need to do business. You need to process the payments. How, as the compliance officer, do you try to do you deal with this regulatory uncertainty? And I guess for, for other people out there, whether they're in fintech or some of these other emerging areas, do you have any advice for folks trying to, to grapple with this kind of both uncertainty and also this kind of 50 state confusion that we're, we're particularly good at here in the U.S. where you have California with one set of rules and Illinois with another and, you know, each state wanting to impose some of their own special requirements. Uh, yeah, I mean, the uh, one thing to look at are exemptions. Um, so there are certain exemptions um, specifically for uh, payment facilitators like us. Um, so if that is all you do, um, you might be able to take advantage of what, the, what is called uh, agent of the pay exemption. Um, now, you know, there's a difference between um, in certain states they exist, um, they're clearly set out. Um, in certain states, they don't really, the regulations don't really address that issue. Um, so there's a little bit of more uncertainty as to whether you might be able to take advantage of such an exemption. And then there are some states that actually will have an exemption, but it was, they were still required to at least register um, with their local agency, even though they may not subject you to exams and, or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's um, very fragmented. Um, the best I can say is get a good uh, outside lawyer. <laughs> That's a long term help. Um, and they usually can give you a 50 state um, you know, survey and let you know what's available where. And then it, at the end of the day, it's a matter of a you know risk reward um, equation, right? Yeah, no, that makes that makes sense. Um, I'm curious. I mentioned COVID at the beginning, and certainly I think people are doing more remotely. What what impact do you think the pandemics had on your industry? If you were looking at fintech or you know the kind of payment processing thing, what, what kind of things do you see changing? And are there any long term things that you see coming out as a result of COVID that may change the nature of of the industry? Uh, well, in my mind, there's no question that there's been a fundamental shift in perception of, you know, how we use financial services, how we make purchases, <laughs> and how we view our financial lives, period, right? I think to a larger degree, uh, as you already mentioned, um, you know, this kind of a shift has been happening already, uh, even prior to the pandemic, um, but obviously at a slower pace than it is now. And, you know, I can, as you mentioned also, I think earlier, personally, I can't remember when was the last time I went physically to a bank, even prior right. to the pandemic. Oh, I, know. I think that's <laughs> true. I mean, even pre-COVID, you'd go, you know, once a month or at least, you know, older people. I mean, you know, I might go occasionally to make a deposit or withdrawal, but most of it 
was online, but now you know we're taking pictures of our checks. Everything's yep. being deposited. There's no need to see a teller. I mean, I did a I refinanced my house online. You're doing all the the kind of big banking things that people used to do. Seem to me they just have shifted online. Even for people slow to make that change, <laughs> COVID is making it because some of that older group of the particularly the ones that now don't want to go out and meet you know, in a physical world. So I do wonder, right, about how it's impacting our general perceptions about what even is a bank and how many people are actually seeing tellers and going to the bank. And to some extent, yep. even going now to ATMs, right? I mean, if you're mainly shopping from home and doing stuff remotely on the web, you don't need a lot of cash from the ATM because exactly. you're going to process all your payments, you know, online through credit exactly. cards or other, or ePay or the other various modes that are now available. So I do, I, my sense is, you know, the economy shifted. It'd be interesting, I'd maybe, I'm sure there are statistics on, you know, ATM cash withdrawals or visits to the bank, but my sense is those have all got to be down. In, in yeah, and, and, you know, um, to some extent, regulators have actually uh, kind of bolstered um, this as well by coming up with these, um, you know, changing or, or giving a temporary relief uh, from certain regulations that require in-person contact for certain things and activities. Definitely, um, there's been a lot of change <laughs> and people have gotten a lot more comfortable doing business online um, and conducting their financial lives online. How long lasting that will be post-pandemic, um, you know, remains to be seen. To some extent, I think it will be long lasting in, in some other areas, maybe not so much because of the, I think it depends upon consumer protection uh, rights, uh, potentially. Uh, because I think most of the people by now are comfortable sending money using PayPal, for example, to someone else. But would they park a, a large amount of money with somebody like PayPal um, without FDS insurance protection? Uh, you know, I'm not so sure. <laughs> Definitely, uh, you know, I think there's, there's a shift going on. Um, but, you know, to what extent it's going to stick um, after pandemic, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. And that was the, actually the question I was going to ask is, you know, we talked about the you know, the general consensus is that um, a lot of the a lot of the shift that has occurred, uh, specifically with the digital economy, were things that were occurring. It's just COVID really kind of flipped the switch, and and it went yeah. from you know kind of happening to that's just the way it happens. Period. Right. Um, I, I'm curious. I know you know that regulation has been slow to keep up with technology period and, and these things as these things are occurring. I'm curious if you see, you know, within those shifts that have occurred and, and that the things that maybe we're going to see more permanent, um, do you see also regulation then following, you kind of hinted, uh, touched on that a bit, but do you see um, this also expediting maybe some regulation that was out there potentially and, and that we might see kind of come to uh, uh, the head here in the next, you know, six to, to 12 months. Uh, yeah, I mean, the regulations are definitely changing. And as I said, I think it's been happening even prior to the pandemic in terms of, um, you know, there's certain due diligence or KYC, you know, your customer rules that you have to follow. And I think in past um, that always required actually getting a physical copy of an ID and, and checking it. And, uh, you know, in the last few years, there's been a shift to allow people to get electronic copies of, of IDs and, and stuff like that to make it easier so you don't have to have an in-person contact whatsoever. 
Um, so yeah, there's definitely been a shift to um, change regulations to make it easier to operate online and, and remotely. I know one of the concerns that a lot of folks, I think on both sides, both the, you know, some of the banking institutional side, but also a lot of retailers and merchants continue to be very focused on cybersecurity as part of the fintech issue around, you know, as more and more money changes hands through these alternative channels and, you know, payment processors or PayPal. Um, and and all, I know you do, a, you process through a variety of different uh, mechanisms. You know, Epic offers a range of solutions mm-hmm. to customers. I, I, I'm interested in your take, I guess, from a compliance standpoint about where are we in that security? How secure are these transactions? And is more regulation coming around? Um, you know, the security piece, I know you mentioned identity verification is one area where we're seeing some modification, but what what's the latest as someone that follows that? Kind of what, what's the latest or what should listeners be thinking about around security of these transactions? Yeah, so um, as I'm sure you know, um, we are subject to certain PCI DSS rules, uh, which are, you know, payment card industry data security standards, right? There is some movement um, in particularly the uh, card not present uh, verifications and, and requirements. I think PCI Council is trying to make it a little more uh, moldable as opposed to cookie cutter, where you're supposed to comply with these requirements and that's it. <laughs> Um, because they recognize there are different ways to achieve the same uh, goal, right? Uh, and in the day, the goal is always just to make sure that no data can be stolen or hacked into, uh, or if it happens, that you can catch it as, as quickly as possible. Um, so there's definitely some progress being made there and some changes coming up um, that will go effect in the next few years. But yeah, um, that's, you know, for my company, that's always been the one concern is the security of the data. Um, and we've always taken it very seriously. So um, knock on the wood, uh, never had any data breaches. <laughs> okay, gotcha. In an era where there are a lot of data breaches being announced all the time, that's impressive you guys yeah. haven't had one. So that's good. <laughs> that is, that's, that's good. And, and I think that makes sense. I think we've talked about this before, um, but I'm curious to get your opinion, Adriana. Um, do you anticipate uh, shifts there in regulation or in the courts as far as how data breaches are handled, uh, how they're how they're viewed? So there has been some changes um, in some states, uh, particularly California, with the CCPA and now CPRA coming up on the horizon. Uh, so definitely changes they're being made in terms of how fast you got to detect it, um, what you got to do once you know things go uh, badly, and you, and you have to notify the AG, the consumers, and whatnot. Um, so yeah, um, definitely California Privacy Rights Act just got pass in these last elections so it's something for everyone to look forward to um, but uh, but uh, you know likely we have uh, about uh, a year a couple of years to figure it out before it goes into effect uh, all the changes that have just been passed uh, but yeah definitely uh, some changes being made uh, in terms of the private class of action um, they can be uh, you know enforced against the company once things go badly um, so definitely changes are on the horizon and something to look at for, for all in-house counsel um, that operate in California. Great. Do you think, I know there's been talk for years about trying to come up with a national standard, either around 
privacy or, or fintech regulation, you know, to, to address this issue of 50 states with different things. It has not gained much traction, at least during the course of the of the Trump administration. I don't know if, whether there's any sense that that may get revisited under a Biden administration or whether there'll be more impetus with things like CCRA. And, you know, now that people are, you know, they're more and more transatlantic, you know, global companies and we're dealing with other things. I, I don't know if you have a sense of whether that's likely something we'll see in the next two to four years or or not. Uh, I don't really have a, you know, a, a prediction for you. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, uh, all I can say is that California tends to be in the forefront of uh, both privacy and security issues. And so uh, it, it tends to be a good standard to follow and it tends to be the strictest. So um, as long as you're compliant with, with that standard, you tend to be compliant with all 50 state standards. But uh, yeah, definitely change has gone on there. And, you know, uh, to be honest with you, we've been waiting for national or federal legislation for so long right. <laughs> that, uh, uh, you know, I, I have stopped waiting. So <laughs> <laughs> That's probably smart, right? Because, yeah, I mean, I think... There doesn't seem to be the political will to make that happen. But your comment about California, I think, is a good reminder for listeners that to some extent, right, whichever one is in the forefront or has the most rigorous standards, you know, to some extent you comply there. California is so big that you don't find many companies opting out, right? If you're going to do business in the United States, you kind of have to include California. And so you're going to comply there and they make it, you know, easier to basically comply. Yeah, and I was just going to mention, uh, for example, we, uh, you know, I know that some companies uh, do it differently and uh, depends how large you are. But uh, to a certain extent, I guess you can, if you're operating outside of California, but you're still subject to California uh, privacy requirements because of the number of California residents that you have as customers, you could potentially, you know, apply different standards to different customers. Um, we have, for example, chosen to apply the same standard <laughs> across the board. Doesn't matter where you're coming from, uh, mm -hmm. because it's just a lot easier, um, you know, for someone like us who is not huge um, and the resources that we have available to us. Uh, it's a lot easier just to apply the same standard across the board. But there's, you know, some choices to be made there for um, uh, for companies potentially. Gotcha. Um, I am uh, one of my responsibilities with the firm includes um, kind of managing our, our content and working with attorneys and producing and, and getting placed um, the articles and things that we work on. And I will tell you the CC, all of our CCPA uh, content is some of our, our best performing. Uh, oh, yeah. just, uh, a, just a, a thirst for any kind of insight and understanding and updates and anything related. And we were just in a meeting this morning. Yeah. Talking about um, CCRP, Am I, is that right? Is that right? I'm still <laughs> Pri Privacy Rights Act, yeah, CPRA. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, uh, just this morning, and then of course we also have our uh, UK arm, and so we're constantly uh, following um, uh, what's happening with uh, Brexit and um, the uh, EU. Uh, GDPR. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. Uh, what's that like for you all? Because you all uh, do international as well. You're having to meet both of those. and <laughs> Yes, we sure do. <laughs> uh, and that's the unfortunate fact, I think, for most U.S.-based companies. Even if you are U.S.-based, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have to worry about what's going on around the world. <laughs> right. um, because some of those you know, regulations 
tend to have an extra territorial reach, so to speak, and um, and can get you um, just because you have you know customer data um, that comes from that part of the world. So GDPR is one of the best examples of that. And we went through the pain of you know complying with it a few years ago when it, when it went into effect. Um, but the good news is, though, if you were subject to GDPR and you complied with it, uh, a lot of it really um, is now applicable to CCPA and the upcoming CPRA. So, uh, so that's the good news. Um, it was painful <laughs> to, to get there, but uh, you know, uh, at least it's it's a. It's very, you know, obviously there's some differences, but um, um, it will get you, if you are if you are complying with GDPR, it will get you a long way with complying with both of those California uh, laws. So, so that's the good news. <laughs> You've written quite a bit about the privacy and the digital space, and, and it is interesting. One of the things that we've talked about a good bit about is the fact that the European, the differences between the, where the, European community is around digital privacy and the um, American kind of mentality. And, and it's interesting because you just said, it, you know, that, that, that it is kind of, well, Europe kind of set a standard in a lot of ways. And, and it's very curious. It would be very interesting to see as we go forward and as we see these this shift and then how much of this actually does kind of propel us forward to that next evolutionary step, how much, you know, the, that um, much more conservative approach to uh, privacy uh, from Europe influences kind of global privacy uh, regulation. Yep, definitely. Um, and I think uh, there's been kind of like a shift uh, in the, perspective and the mentality, I think, of a lot of U.S. companies where they literally had to change their perspective on it uh, in terms of how they handle data and what they do with it um, because of the uh, the requirements that came out of Europe. Um, so, yeah. I think that's true. I, I was also curious about, uh, if we're looking at the future of, of, of fintech, uh, we can't avoid talking about blockchain and cryptocurrency. I'm I'm curious. Does Epic take any any cryptocurrencies? Is that part of your platform? Or the the people have the ability to pay in crypto? So we take a lot of different payment methods, but that's not one of them. Okay, I, I didn't see it on the list, but I don't, I don't. And do you think that is that likely to change at some point? Do you envision the day will come where people can you know use use cryptocurrency as one of those menu choices to make payments? So, um, so, so first of all, I think there's a difference between blockchain and um, you know distributed ledger technology and yeah. cryptocurrencies, right? Good. Absolutely. Um, no, so, you know, the, the blockchain and, and the distributed ledger technology has come you know a long way, and I think uh, there's no question there are a lot of projects around the world already using that technology, uh, and I think there definitely will be even more going forward. Um, you know, ranging from, you know, in retail and supply chain, it's being used to keep track of shipments and whatnot, and government and healthcare, um, it's used for identity management, data management, and so on. So, so there's no question that when it comes to blockchain itself, and then distributed ledger technology, that's already here and, and being used, and it will be, um, it will continue to do so. Cryptocurrency, on the other hand, has been a little bit different. <laughs> uh, it's a little more limited in its use, obviously, than, than blockchain itself. Um, so, um, you know, 
obviously has not reached um, a mass adoption yet uh, as, as a medium of exchange and, and for payments. Um, and, you know, to some extent, it makes sense because it's fairly volatile, um, number one. Uh, so it's kind of hard to hedge your risk in terms of currency exchange. And uh, also it's kind of, um, you know, uh, for a lot of what we process for, it's fairly small amounts. And so it's kind of hard for that reason too, to apply it and use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's been a lot of changes recently in, uh, you know, cryptocurrencies um, so or, or the entire landscape of cryptocurrencies. So, um, you know, it makes to be seen. Uh, but, uh, you know, for example, you know, PayPal just recently came out with the announcement that now you can buy and sell and, uh, and uh, you know, store cryptocurrency in your PayPal account. Um, oh, I didn't see that. Okay. Yeah, that, that just came out. Now, you, you can't use it to um, send cryptocurrency to uh, your friend or family member. Um, you can't use it to buy anything, neither. But you can just sell it, buy it, and and store it within your PayPal account. Um, and I suspect that eventually that will be the next step that you will be able to send cryptocurrency to somebody else or or um, or use it to buy uh, you know products and services uh, using your PayPal account. Uh, but that's been a huge. Uh, I think that's going to go a long way to uh, increase the adoption of cryptocurrencies because obviously the easier you make it to buy and sell these things, um, the more people are going to do it. <laughs> um, then obviously OCC as well has recently come out with, um, you know, allowing or clarifying rather that, you know, safekeeping um, services that you provide to customers can include um, cryptocurrency. Uh, so there's been definitely a lot of movement in that space. And, you know, um, all of it is likely to at least increase its usage and adoption. But, you know, where it ends up, uh, we'll just have to wait and see, I think. <laughs> <laughs> It feels like one of those innovations that comes along and seems interesting and viable, but doesn't get off the ground initially. And then, you know, five, 10 years later, something happens and it just clicks, you know, and yeah. it just takes off. And it's, and it's one of those things where it's like, oh my gosh, well, you know, what, what were we doing? And those, you know, those early kind of I, I, streaming services is a great example uh, you know, there there were so many early streaming services even before uh, Netflix even had started doing its streaming service. Um, yeah. It was still just doing the the DVDs to home service. There were streaming services out there, and and they, you know, you see it, and you're like, oh, this seems really neat, but they weren't able to to catch on. And then there was that thing, and now it's like, you know, well, of course, like, what are you talking about? Like, that's insane. <laughs> Crypto feels very much like that. It feels like, and of course, there's the you know the the whole currency, political <laughs> yes. nations uh, um, component to it, which will completely uh, you know has so potential to just really upend a lot of the way we think about things. But um, it does seem like that kind of innovation that that is that when it does. I agree. I agree. And, and, you know, uh, we should mention, we should also mention that Coinbase as well has recently come out with a card um, that you can use, um, get rewards for all purchases, but you can use any asset, um, any virtual or crypto asset you might have in your Coinbase account um, with that card. So, I mean, that, that's, I think those two things, Coinbase and uh, PayPal coming up with these things um, is definitely going to increase the usage of these, these things. <laughs> so that might be the tipping point, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, it does. It obviously has some appeal 
and, and but obviously would have a major impact on Epic's business, right? The idea that you know you just pay in Bitcoin or some other coin for international transactions, so you're not worrying about converting dollars to euros to yen. You know, you get this other you know option. Plus, you can get very instant, potentially instantaneous transactions. Whereas, still, for a lot of traditional international currency exchanges, even with banks, it takes a surprisingly long time. You know, to clear those purchases. And obviously that's part of the service Epic provides is some of that multi-currency conversion and transfer, which is cumbersome, but in some ways, if it were widely adopted, a cryptocurrency could make a lot of that more efficient and you could have, you know, single single unit, eliminate a lot of the, you know, currency conversions, potentially do small transactions very quickly. That's not true. One thing to keep in mind though, is, uh, which I think a lot of people forget, um, is, you know, with um, traditional credit card, debit cards, whatever you may be using, you get a lot of legal protections yes. <laughs> uh, in, in the sense that, you know, if you change your mind or, uh, or you're not happy with the product or whatever, you can get your money back with crypto, um, you know, that money is gone. <laughs> That's right. No, if I send my crypto to rent my villa in Italy and get there and the thing is gone or destroyed or whatever, I'm just out of luck, right? That, yep. that, that money right. is, that crypto is gone in a way that you don't have that protection. And I do think for, particularly for international transactions, you want that protection for a lot of the time as consumers. We want and expect some level of protection that you get from this institutional level stuff that you would lose. So it's interesting. It is definitely, it's, it's an interesting thing. I want to talk Um, more about this villa in Italy. You're, you're, uh, (laughs) yeah, right. Um, I know we're beginning to run low on time. I'm, I'm interested if you have, I know I've already asked you to predict the future several times here, but uh, either either predictions of further evolutions or maybe um, practical tips, particularly for you've been in the compliance role so long. If we've got other people serving as compliance officers, or maybe there, I've talked to a number of in-house counsel that also wear the compliance hat because the company's too small or they're not regulated as intensely, so they're doing compliance. I always like to end by asking guess if they've got practical tips and you've been doing this for quite a while that you want to share with other you know other professionals in your role either in-house counsel or compliance officer roles that you might want to share the listeners sure um so i would um, my perspective would be there are some really basic foundational steps uh, or elements of a compliance program um that you know you should put in place uh, at your company and they tend to be kind of the same across the board. It doesn't matter whether you're dealing with the AML or privacy or whatever area. So um, those really basic steps would be, you know, having written policies and procedures in place, having a designated person that will be serving the role of compliance officer and overseeing all of the, you know, the entire program, um, having ongoing training for your staff so that everybody knows what they're supposed to be doing and so that you're all on the same page. Uh, and then finally, obviously, independent audit, uh, which is there to make sure that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a third party um, that you hire. Uh, you could be doing it in-house as well, um, as long as it's done by a person that's not involved in the day-to-day uh, compliance uh, program. Um, but those would be like, you know, four basic steps um, that you should take and make sure you have nailed down in your company. And as long as you do, it really doesn't matter what area you're dealing with, it's going to be the same, um, same stuff. So. <laughs> gotcha. That's helpful. Oh, I think that's great. 
Good, Brian. Any other questions I, I, that I that I may have skipped or that you think we should talk to before we wrap up? No, uh, just you know, um, how much vacation time do I need for this Italy trip? And <laughs> we're ready. I'm just going to take my big pot of cryptocurrency and buy that, you know, buy that villa. That's the plan. <laughs> Adriana, thank you so much for spending time chatting with us. I, I appreciate it. And I think this has been a good discussion, particularly for folks that were wondering what's kind of happening in this fintech area. So that's that's terrific. Thanks um, for having me. If anyone want to connect, are you, on, are you on LinkedIn or do you have any speaking engagements? People want to follow any of the stuff you're writing? Uh, yes, I, I am on LinkedIn and I do write for ACC Docket, which is a, a monthly publication for Association of Corporate Counsel, which is the largest in-house um, attorney association. Um, so uh, you can all of course, find me there as well. And um, yeah, I mean, I do speak occasionally at conferences as well. I, I just did at the annual ACC conference, um, but uh, uh, yeah, so just look for me on LinkedIn and uh, you'll find me. <laughs> Terrific. Oh, thanks. And yeah, we do, we've got a lot of listeners that are ATC members, so that's a good reminder about the about the docket. I appreciate it. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Well, I want to remind our listeners you can find previous episodes of the In-House Roundhouse and subscribe to our podcast at our website, wombledickinson.com, or go to iTunes, Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, you'll find the In-House Roundhouse. If you have questions or comments, you can share them with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. And if you have ideas for future episodes, please let me know. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the In-House Roundhouse. See you at the next station. In-House Roundhouse is a production of Womble Bond Dickinson. Brian Ewing is our producer, and Robert Daughtry is our audio engineer.